Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Norton Rose Fulbright. My name is Arup Sen and I'm a senior knowledge lawyer in the financial services team in London and I will be giving a very, very short intro to this podcast as my colleague Simon is away. Uh, just to let you know that in today's show we'll be covering three topics. Firstly, we will be looking at uh, the changes to the payments landscape over in the United States with our colleague Steve Ashatino, who is a partner in our US practice. Uh, we will then move to a discussion of the FCA's business plan with John Coley, who heads up the risk consultancy practice in EMEA for Norton Rose. And finally, we will close with a discussion about changes and developments to this uh, counter-terrorist finance and AML uh, regime in the UK with Lisa Lee Lewis. So without further ado, I will hand over to Simon and Steve for a discussion on the payments landscape in the United States. So in the first part of this podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Stephen Ashatino, who is head of fintech the United States, and his practice focuses on payments technology. Stephen, great to have you here. Great to be here, Simon. Thank you very much for having me. Stephen, uh, to begin with, um, I thought I'd open up with a fairly uh, general question. For those unfamiliar with payments technology, could you give us a brief explanation of what payment technology is and some of the key trends that you're seeing in the United States? Happy to, Simon. Payments technology essentially is virtually any form of electronic payment, ranging from traditional credit or debit card and ACH transactions to the most sophisticated forms of mobile payment solutions, cryptocurrencies, and even connected devices. Many shorten the term payments technology to paytech, very similar to fintech. With regard to key trends in the US, and I think these are really global trends, um, just going through a list that jumps uh, out of my mind, contactless payments, uh, buy now, pay later solutions, typically involving installments, uh, mobile points of sale, self-checkout, those involve things like cashierless stores where you process your own payments, mobile and virtual banking solutions, uh, so-called faster payments that are seeking to uh, impose same-day settlement, um, and of course, the rise of cryptocurrencies and the push for central bank digital currencies. I'm sure there are other trends, but those are the ones that jump out at me. Okay, Steve. Uh, and for my second question, I know that a lot of banks are considering deploying paytech solutions in the US, and you've done a lot of work in this area. In your experience, what are the potential opportunities, but also what are the pitfalls? Um, great question, Simon. We've done a lot of work in this area. Um, so banks that are successful in other parts of the world typically go one of two routes. One would be to seek a bank charter in the U.S. Those are typically issued by the Federal Reserve or the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, uh, known as the OCC. Um, that is a very expensive and time-consuming process. We have a lot of experience doing it, um, but banks have to understand that the U.S. takes banking regulations very seriously, um, and there's a tremendous underwriting process, um, and that will require all kinds of compliance programs to be in place, uh, executive management team that is uh, impressive, uh, and 
experienced. Um, and there's going to be lots of regulatory requirements going forward. And there's also no guarantee that a bank charter ultimately will, will be issued. Uh, because of that uncertainty, timing, expense, et cetera, uh, banks often choose to go a, a route of lesser resistance, so to speak, where they instead wish to launch certain limited financial products in the U.S. Um, those typically would not require a bank charter, but they may be regulated in other ways. Uh, the most common one is for regulators to determine those products to be um, money services and the bank therefore to be operating a money services business in the US. If that's the case, the bank would have to register at the federal level, but, and this is an important point, it would also be regulated in every state in which the bank conducts business. And that's typically uh, 49 separate jurisdictions in the US. Um, so when we work with banks looking to come into the U.S., job one is typically to help them to minimize their U.S. regulatory footprint where possible. Uh, one of the most common ways to do that is to contract with regulated third parties that can provide certain types of services. Um, and if that isn't possible or isn't desired for whatever reason, we can certainly help banks to obtain all the necessary licenses they would need to operate in the U.S. Okay, Steve, that, that's really helpful. I just want to move on to another topic now, and I think it's one of the hottest topics um, in the payment space, and that is the central bank digital currency. And I'd just like to get from you, what is the current view in the US? And also, do you think that we will see a digital dollar anytime soon? There certainly is a lot of activity across the globe in what's referred to as the CBDC space, if you will, central bank digital currency. Um, the U.S. is absolutely looking at this, and you're seeing a lot of different talking points from regulators, some of which are not entirely consistent. In terms of general themes, I believe the U.S. approach is that it is more important to get it right than to be first. The U.S. recognizes that it is a market leader on the global level in a number of ways, uh, it doesn't want to be left behind, but it doesn't want to do anything that could imperil its current role as a market leader. Um, also, keep in mind in the U.S., there are other initiatives that arguably compete with the CBDC efforts. Um, what, these typically involve so-called faster payments initiatives, um, and they include the Federal Reserve's FedNow project, just by way of one example. FedNow is scheduled to come online in 2023. And when it does, any financial institution at one of the Federal Reserve's regional banks will be able to process real-time payments around the clock. That is a very significant difference from what exists today, which typically takes days. Um, so some question the need for a CBDC. Um, but if you ask me, I think there will be a so-called digital dollar. It's just not gonna come anytime within the next couple of years, in my opinion. Okay, Steve. And as a final question in this section, and it's got a little bit of a horizon scanning element, um, do you foresee any broad-based cryptocurrency legislation being passed in the United States anytime soon? Well, I'll take that in two parts. Um, I think there will be cryptocurrency legislation. I'm just not sure about how soon it will be. Very recently, there was a lot of press around an addition to an omnibus infrastructure bill that involved the regulation of cryptocurrencies. It essentially would classify many players in the crypto space as brokers 
and substantially increase reporting requirements. This caused a tremendous backlash um, that really was unforeseen in its size, its scale, and gravity. Um, and it's caused a lot of people to speak out on the regulation side and on the uh, company side. Um, essentially, that I think the common theme is the crypt players in the crypto space welcome regulation. They think it would provide consistency and predictability, enhance their credibility, and instill public confidence. Um, and I think you'll, you're going to see a lot of support for broad-based cryptocurrency legislation. It's not currently on the docket, and this will have to be something that is very comprehensive to be effective. Um, so I do think it's going to happen, but I don't think it's going to happen, certainly in, in the coming legislative cycle. Thanks, Steve. Always great to catch up with you. There's always so much going on in the payment space in the US. It's a pleasure, Simon. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. In this part of the podcast, uh, we will be discussing the FCA's business plan for this year and the next. And I'm delighted uh, to be joined by the head of our risk consulting practice in EMEA, John Coley. Hello, John. Hey, Arab. Um, firstly, thanks for giving me your time. Thanks for joining us today. Um, now, the business plan was was arguably much, much awaited in many respects, but um, it's probably uh, not too uh, unfair to say that, that parts of it were slightly underwhelming. I mean, what were your first reactions when you saw it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was actually really looking forward to, to this iteration. Um, I thought it would be a really good opportunity for the regulator to set a clear course of action across the UK as we hopefully continue to emerge from the lockdowns. Uh, and also given this year's publication had been pushed back. Now, I guess whilst at a headline level, the FCA promises a more innovative, assertive and adaptive approach, um, I did find it very generalised uh, in a few different areas. And I think a bit of a barometer around this Arab is the amount of usage of the word continue. <laughs> uh, and also that a number of the outcomes are, or at least appear to be quite high level and, and unspecific. Yeah, no, I think that's that's certainly uh, the impression I got as well. It very much feels like, uh, you know, almost the sequel, if you like, to uh, to a plan that, that you know, to, to previous plans in many ways. And, and as you said, there many, many of the issues uh, have been continued on. Um, I mean, if we look at the plan on a sort of structural basis, um, you know, what sort of things does it contain and, you know, how is it laid out? Overall, it's split into four key sections. So there's the FCA's role, consumer priorities, wholesale markets priorities, and then priorities across all markets. Um, taking consumer first, the priorities there are enabling effective consumer investment decisions, ensuring consumer credit markets work well, making payments safe and accessible, and then also delivering fair value in the digital age. Mm -hmm. Now, with the exception of one further new priority around the consumer duty, all of the others I mentioned uh, are otherwise actually all the same as, as from last year. Um, the wholesale priorities are reviewing the rules in primary and secondary markets, completing LIBOR transition, tackling market abuse and, and financial crime, um, improving asset management and non-bank finance, ensuring people can choose appropriate pensions, and then lastly, raising standards in the appointed representatives regime. 
there's quite a lot there but they're mm. also you know it's quite a diverse bunch of, of quite different things to, to, to be honest um mm -hmm. and then obviously the overall priorities are, are fraud dni esg international financial resilience and resolution and then lastly operational resilience um i think dni and esg you know speaking personally are, are call out ones for me uh, in that sure. section yeah no i can I, i'd certainly agree with that esg does seem to be uh, hugely uh, in the crosshairs for many, many a regulator and firm. Um, now, notwithstanding the fact that obviously you've mentioned there that there's there's many aspects of this that seem quite general in nature. There's there's a lot which seems like uh, you know we've seen it before. But if you are a regulated firm and uh, you are you know conducting business in the UK and you'll be interested in this, what sort of things would you be looking out for if you're one of those uh, one of those guys? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, although there are various well-trodden paths, in the detail, there's actually some interesting new developments. Um, in terms of particular ones, I'd probably call out four areas. So firstly, change and innovation. Um, there's an important quote from Nickel, I think, that data is now the lifeblood of a, a modern regulator. And also that over the next five years, the FCA will become a data regulator as much as a financial one. Mm -hmm. um, Whilst the FCA will be launching a new 150 million pound data strategy, um, to be honest, the plan doesn't actually yet provide a lot more insight into how that will look other than data and regulatory returns will be streamlined through digital reporting and there'll be better coordination between the, the regulators in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, which brings me on to the second point, regulatory intervention. So the plan continues various existing themes as we've discussed, but it also signals a potential tightening of the FCA's risk appetite. So it refers to a, a more robust gateway, including that if necessary, the FCA will turn down more applications for authorization. Mm -hmm. So businesses will need to have even stronger business models. Um, and the plan also notes that the FCA itself expects to intervene in real time more often to prevent harm. And this could signal more remediation and enforcement activity in the future. Um, the third area is consumers. So Nikhil actually notes that almost 4 million more people are now financially vulnerable uh, following the pandemic. Um, and, and the FCA, interestingly and importantly, is very aware that more is being done online as a result of it. So there's a, a growing number of 18 to 30 year olds um, accessing digital financial services, um, and they may have lower levels of capital and, and financial capability um, and also be heavily influenced by social media. So these are areas where the FCA should really focus on with its new consumer duty in order to, to prevent harm. Um, the, the plan also talks about a digital market strategy, which will include investigation into sludge practices that make it hard for customers to cancel a product or service online. Um, and in respect to financial promotions, the FCA plans to put into place new procedures to fast track its response to breaches um, with more proactive monitoring of firms that repeatedly breach its rules. And then, in the accompanying webinar to, to the plan itself, one last consumer-related point to, that, that caught my um, caught my eye was Nikhil referred to the UK regime for defining investors as sophisticated as being very liberal in quotes, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so this might be an area that you know to keep an eye on at least that might be examined further in the future. 
Um, the last area out really is wholesale. Now there's a range of different priorities here, as, as I mentioned. Um, yeah. Two particular ones, I think, to just, just mentioned in passing ESG and, and asset management. So for, for ESG, obviously a massively important and growing area. Um, the plan lists the number of outcomes the, the FCA wishes to see, including protection against misleading marketing, um, and also that the FCA will monitor the exercise of investor stewardship by institutional investors, um, including things like voting at uh, annual general meetings. Um, and then in asset management, the FCA stated that the increased supervision of the ESG attributes of asset managers and will follow up on its review of authorised fund managers in the next year or two. I see. So that's that's really interesting, actually, John. I mean, uh, you know, despite the fact that there is obviously a lot of continuation, a lot of uh, general uh, chat, if you like, in that in, in that plan, um, you know, the devil is again in the detail. And as you've, mm. you've sort of set out there, it, it does sort of feel like there has at least been a small reconfiguration uh, that, that's happened as a result of the pandemic and the kind of changing uh, financial landscape that we now find ourselves in. So, uh, yeah, very, very interesting uh, take that. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge, and today I'm joined by Lisa Lee Lewis, Head of Risk Consulting, EMEA Advisory. This podcast accompanies a series of podcasts discussing the emerging trends arising in the regulatory and financial crime space, what firms should be aware of when navigating and responding to all types of risks, as well as how the regulator's responses to financial crime solutions has evolved. The theme of today's podcast is to consider current proposals to reform the anti-money laundering requirements at both a UK and EU level. We will discuss the elements of each of the proposals and consider the extent to which the approaches differ. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Simon. Thank you for that. Lisa, to start off with, could you please give us an update as to where we are from a UK and EU perspective? Yes, certainly. So the current position is that both the EU and the UK are conducting general reviews on the AML framework. The EU is seeking to build on its ambitious action plan and is seeking to address inconsistencies in the approach taken by different member states and to address granularity in the EU's framework. There are proposals to introduce two regulations. The first is the AMLA regulation, which will establish a single EU AML supervisory authority. And it is hoped that the AMLA will be operational by 2024 with a fully fledged and directly supervising entities by 2026. So the second of the draft regulation called the conduct regulation proposes detailed rules and requirements in areas such as customer due diligence. And there is also, of course, as we know, the sixth money laundering directive which is designed to further enhance arrangements in member states which prevent the use of the financial system for money laundering terrorist financing. Also proposed is a single EU rulebook containing a unified regulatory AML framework with directly applicable rules and regulations, um, which will require more granular uh, and detailed information around uh, what is expected. 
Now, the UK, by contrast, is adopting a slightly different approach by way of a tripartite review of its existing AML framework, rather than seeking to overhaul it like the EU. So in the UK, there is a call for evidence to seek information to improve the effectiveness of the money laundering regulations rather than its technical compliance. Um, and this is done by using a three theme structure consisting of one, the systemic review, two, the regulatory review, and three, the supervisory review. Now taking these each in turn, the systemic review will consider the effectiveness of the current system, the extent of its application, and the evidence of enforcement action being taken. There have been some criticisms of the money laundering regulations, which have suggested that specific regulations do not consistently or proportionately support the aims of the MLRs or represent a disproportionate burden, and that they potentially focus too much on mandatory requirements rather than information sharing between entities. And the systemic review will accordingly seek to address whether resources are being wasted and complying with requirements that do little in practice to curb money laundering and terrorist financing. The UK's regulatory review, the second piece, will assess the extent to which an effective risk-based approach is supported by the current framework and to respond to feedback received from industry, from law enforcement agencies and supervisors and so forth. It will also consider the extent to which the MLR support an efficient engagement in the SARS regime, considering that there have been suggestions that the role of the supervisors in relation to the quality of SARS is unclear and limited, um, with one suggestion being that supervisors may be granted the ability to request SARS directly from those that they supervise. Now, in addition, the regulatory review will consider the effectiveness of new technologies used by businesses to aid their performance of their duties under their MLRs. And lastly, the call for evidence states that the supervisory review is not intended to indi indicate an established desire to depart from the current model of supervision, but really to test its ongoing effectiveness. And this is likely a response from the FATF mutual evaluation, which found that the UK's AML supervisory regime was moderately effective but noting some weaknesses in, in the disparate approaches taken by various supervisors. Thanks, Lisa. That's a really, really helpful um, summary. And I think an interesting point you made at the end is about the desire to depart from the current model of supervision. Uh, my take on it is that the EU is looking at the current model of supervision with the two new regulations and the move to a single EU rulebook in AML plus the new EU single supervisory authority. And then of course, you've got the UK on the other hand, with its call for effectiveness of the money laundering regulations. There's a lot to take in there, Lisa. So my next question is, what is the market saying about what is the market saying about all of these proposals? Well, the initial focus on the AMLA would be on the financial services sector. And it is suggested that the AMLA will have uh, material enforcement powers, including the power to issue fines of up to 2 million euros. 
This is somewhat controversial. It may not be well received by member states who each have their own sanctions regimes. And there is a growing concern around how AMLA will avoid overlaps and duplications with member state regulators and other supervisory bodies. Nevertheless, it has been acknowledged that a su single supervisory body, it does have its merits, specifically that money launderers have often sought to exploit soft links in the pan-European framework in member states, where they lack resources to adequately manage money laundering and terrorist financing risks. From a UK perspective, the most significant point to note is the extent to which the proposals differ um, to that of the EU. And both the UK and EU reviews have somewhat been initiated on the basis of the FATF recommendations, although there are no references to each other's reviews. And there is a slight concern that politics may get in the way of effective law enforcement and the perception that uh, possibly the UK is emphatically choosing to diverge from the EU position may have some disadvantages with respect to competition and reputation. Thanks, Lisa. Um, I just want to move to somewhere else now. Um, so we've had the EU legislative proposals and then following that separately, the European Banking Authority has recently launched a consultation on new guidelines on the role of AML CFT uh, compliance officers. Um, in your view, what is this consultation seeking to do? Thanks, Simon. It's an interesting um, consultation. Uh, the, the EBA guidelines will address for the first time the entire AML CFT governance setup in the financial services sector across Europe and set clear expectations of the roles, tasks and responsibilities of their, what they term the AML CFT compliance officer. In the UK, we'd call this the money laundering reporting officer um, and, and the management and how this will interact at group level. So among other requirements, the draft guidelines will prescribe minimum information requirements for activity reports. It will stipulate certain functions the management should perform in its supervisory function, including the requirement to review uh, particular activity reports and requiring management information through the use of detail around the business-wide uh, risk assessments, specifically on AML. Now, these draft guidelines also state that a group AML CFT compliance officer in the parent company should be appointed to ensure effective implementation of policies and procedures and to ensure that any gaps in the group framework or any group-wide AML risks are effectively addressed. Okay, Lisa. Um, final question. I know you've got a lot of experience dealing with uh, AML matters and in particular helping AML compliance officers. So in your view, how does the EBA's draft guidelines compared to the UK guidelines on the role of AML compliance officers, otherwise known as money laundering reporting officers? In the UK, there is quite a comprehensive framework for MLROs as it stands. And by way of a very quick recap, there are various 
regulatory obligations on firms relating to the role of the MLRO, which is set out in SERP, SIS, the money laundering regulations, and there's guidance in the joint money laundering steering group um, set of guidance. Not only this, the, the MLRO is one of the senior management functions under the senior managers and certification regime, which requires prior regulatory approval before the person can perform the particular role. Uh, and whilst the existing MLRO framework in the UK already sets out the role, the tasks, the responsibilities of this position, including the requirements to produce a report, so at least annually on the effectiveness and operations of the firm's AML systems and controls and present this to uh, senior management, there is likely to be discrepancies between the proposed EBA guidelines and the existing MLRO framework, which means that firms, especially those operating on a cross-border basis, will need to do some thinking on these discrepancies and how to ensure that it can comply with uh, both of the guidelines and expectations. Now, in summary, there is a divergence. Having talked about the various different types of reforms, both at EU proposed reforms at EU and UK level, there is a divergence in approach between both. And in some ways, the EBA guidelines could be seen as a way of aligning with many approaches already embedded in several member states as well as the UK, as well as another method to try to harmonise and remedy a fragmented application of the current AML rules and guidance in the EU. So what I would say to firms is that it would be prudent to keep a close eye not only on the potential enhancements and the call for evidence review in the UK, but also on the developments of the EU, the potential EU single real book on AMLA, the MLO governance guidelines, as well as how support and cooperation between FIU's financial intelligence units will be enhanced on a cross-border basis. Clearly, money laundering and terrorist financing is not a threat that can be addressed at each national level, but effective arrangements really necessitate effective cross-border cooperation between the UK and the EU. Thanks, Lisa. That was very helpful. And as you say, those firms operating on a cross-border basis in the EU and UK will have quite a bit of thinking to do. Thanks very much. And also thank you very much to our listeners for listening. Take care. Goodbye. Just a quick word from me to say thank you to all of our speakers and thank you to you for tuning in. Uh, do stay tuned to regulationtomorrow.com for daily updates on financial services regulatory news. Um, and do subscribe uh, to the podcast on your preferred platform. We've got a lot of mini series coming out at the moment, including one on divergence uh, issues uh, or, or areas of divergence between the EU and the UK, um, and also a mini series on carbon trading. So do look out for that. We hope to catch you again soon. Take care.